Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. With a career that began as a rookie political speechwriter, Christopher Bennett attended Trent University in Canada and developed his love of writing into the public relations and corporate communication space. He worked several high-profile national political campaigns, including for the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, the Honorable John Manley, and served several cabinet ministers and U.S. senators before being elected to the Green Party of Canada's National Council and becoming the leader of the B.C. Green Party in 2007. He holds the record for the youngest leader of the Canadian political party at just 27 years old. In 2011, Business in Vancouver named him to their annual 40 under 40 list. Stepping away from politics, he moved to California, where he began to build his career in the communications, marketing, and public affairs for some of North America's biggest brands, including Best Buy, 1-800-GOT-JUNK, Guitar Center, and Sprint. In 2017, Christopher left his adopted home of Los Angeles and moved back to BC, He was named executive producer and creative head for the Vancouver Film School, and in just three years, he positioned the school to brand new award-winning status globally, including for the first time top 25 film schools globally, top Canadian film school from Variety Magazine, top Canadian film school and top 10 global film schools by Hollywood Reporter, number one animation and VFX school globally by Animation Career Review Magazine, and number one game design program in Canada by Princeton Review Journal. In March 2007, Casting Workbook founder and owner Susan Fox announced Christopher as their new president and chief marketing officer. And Christopher is a really good friend of mine, and we've been friends for 19 years now. So Christopher, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, normally, I normally do what you do all the time, and I read something about someone, and you're the very first person to ever interview me. And I do a lot of interviews. I would, yeah, I would guess. No, but what's weird is I actually was thinking about it because you are way better at this than I am on both sides of this table. And uh, I, I wasn't entirely sure where we're going to go with this, which I never am because you know me well enough. I make it up as we go, but I've got yeah, some ideas. That's why it's a good show. And congratulations, over 100 episodes for you. That's a, uh, like I know a lot of people who watch it and, and every time somebody goes, oh, you should, you know, because they knew I was in this new job and they would go, you should watch. And I go, I know, Cameron. <laughs> Thank you. Well, what's interesting is there's some stuff in your bio that wasn't there. So I'm going to add the rest of the bio. (laughs) As as best as I can recollect, from the first time I met you, you walked into a group interview with about seven other candidates at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. It would have been roughly 2002. (laughs) And you walked into the meeting room and sat down at the end of the boardroom table across from me. And over the course of 90 minutes, I learned that you spoke four languages fluently. You had written two speeches for Canadian prime ministers. You played cello in a symphony orchestra. You'd been a pro surfer. You were either on rock and roll jeopardy or pretending to be or wanted to be. You knew everything about soccer. You read comic books like people change their underwear. You went through so many of those. And uh, you listened to speeches on political thought for fun. You had managed a bar. And I think at that time you were 23. Did I miss anything or was that, was I exaggerating? That, wow. That's pretty close. I, I don't speak four languages. Was it three? I speak two. Okay. I speak conversationally some Hungarian. Um, uh, 
and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to learn Italian, but that doesn't count. And um, I qualified to get on Rock and Roll Jeopardy a very long time ago. And then they, they canceled the show before I was able to fly down and do the thing. Well, what I, what I remember about you is I didn't believe any of it. When I heard it all, I'm like, there's no way that this kid who's 23 has done all that. And I said, I needed proof. And you came in like five I, days later with photos of you in magazines and pictures of you in the newspaper playing second cello in the, the London. Yeah, it was not that I was not a symphony orchestra. I went to the Lester Pearson school for the performing arts and, right. I, and I, and I studied cello. Yeah. I didn't, I never played in a symphony orchestra, but you proved, you proved it all, which was amazing. And then the <laughs> other thing I remember was you told me that you, one of your favorite books was Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which I've forgotten in the last 18 <laughs> years. And then you then told me like a year later, you, you actually never read the book, but you thought I probably would have. So you tossed it into the conversation. Yeah, you called me out on it in an interview and yeah. you nailed me. And I thought, oh, I'm never going to get this job. But because I, I remember my father, who is a, my dad's a really smart guy, and he w really liked that book and he would talk about it a lot. And so I thought, oh, this is what smart people talk about. Well, <laughs> I was 23, right? I, was, I remember. Yeah, you were young. Yeah. I remember being told by two people in the company not to hire you. One of the VPs and one of the directors told me not to hire you. And I went to Brian and I said, I want to hire this guy. And Brian said, would you put your job on it? And I said, I would stake my career on it. And we were standing out at the front door of the junction at, at Granville Island in Vancouver. I said, I would stake my career on it. And I think I made a pretty good decision. You, well, you're probably, I would say, maybe with the exception of my dad and, 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 and possibly um, Doug Michaelman, you're the most important business mentor and friendship I've had in, in 20 years. Well, you, th thank you. That, yeah. I wasn't searching for that, but thank you. No, I, know you I know you weren't, but um, I'm surprised I'm finally on your show because I've spent my lifetime working. I'm usually the number two for the number two. Yeah, you, you will. Well, here's the other thing I've always known about you and I've been frustrated with is you won't put your head out into that spotlight other than when you did it for politics. You like to be, for some reason, behind the scenes of the people and really make them look good. And that's, that is a very core trait of a COO. But what is that about you? Why do you do that? Um, it's, oh, I, I think just because as a speechwriter, that's really, it's, it's not about you. It's about them. Um, I think that I'm not an, I like, I work for one of the biggest casting companies, digital casting service companies in the world. I'm not an actor. Um, and I think you have to want to have a bit of that in you to go to be the, 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 the top dog. I think you have to not always, but in some cases. And I think that, um, I've really enjoyed being in that number two role and all the years I spent very closely beside you learning in the room or with Brian or with Marcelo or Doug or um, uh, Mike Pratt uh, and, and being, it, being number two and behind the scenes has afforded me front row seats to some of the best learning I would never have had otherwise. Yeah, now you just dropped some names in there that a lot of people may not even recognize, but you're talking about like Marcelo was the CEO of Sprint, who you kind of reported into and worked directly yeah. with constantly. And then yeah. you know, Doug Michaelman, I think, was the chief marketing officer, I think, at Sprint. Or, and, and, and now he's, C he's CEO of the Sprint T-Mobile One Million Project. And, 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 um, and Mike then you was CEO of Best Buy and, and Guitar Center. Yeah, like you were reporting into the, the CEO of these major, major brands and really stayed in that background. Is that what got you prepared to be a COO now? And then also at Vancouver Film School, you were really the second in command there too. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, I think so. I, I would I would have happily stayed in that, but I think I wanted to do it. The, the political thing was interesting because I think um, I got a taste of it for one year and I felt like I really had a newfound appreciation for people who have to be at the top and to be the CEO. Um, there is a, a real degree of scrutiny, certainly in politics, but you've got a lot of employees that um, I can see that now in my new role. And I have a great CEO and founder in Susan Fox, and I'm sure we'll get to her too. She's, she's incredible. Um, and it's not easy. So maybe there's a part of me that feels that in these roles, I can be 10 times more effective because that one thing that I don't have to worry about as much is the optics of everyone else. I can just kind of go and do the stuff I know is the, is, is what, what'll work. And I, I don't always have to think about the optics and the optics is like a really big part of that CEO's responsibility. Right. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned Susan Fox, you mentioned casting workbook. That's where you're the, um, the, the president chief marketing officer now. Yeah. What was it that attracted you to that brand? Cause you left a big role as, as the second in command at Vancouver film school. And when yeah, I, first I was, heard, I, and when I heard Vancouver film school, when you were telling me about it, I thought it was a small business, but it had, it's huge. 30 years, best and largest in the world. Um, but like how many thousands of square feet and how many employees and how many students? 200, 250,000 square feet of campus downtown, um, you know, industry leading facilities from, from, from motion and, and performance capture facilities to sound stages and, you know, animation, high, like everything, like basically everything, Hollywood needs is on one campus. It was massive. And it was a real playground and a fun job. I was not planning to leave. I probably would have stayed another three or four years. But then I met Susan and I discovered what they were doing at Casting Workbook. Another company had been around uh, 25 years and was doing some breakthrough great stuff with technology and software in the, in the digital space for, for, for casting and for film and television. And she just saw something in me and believed in me and I, and kind of nudged me and said, would you be interested? And then between her and you and my wife, I thought, okay, I think maybe I might be able to do this. Okay. So we're going to go there. I want to go back a step to Vancouver film school because I just thought of something as well. When you left Sprint in that big role that you had in Sprint and, and went into Vancouver film school, did you not get there the first day or first week or first month and turn around and go like, what the fuck am I doing here? Like, this is way, way bigger than I thought it was going to be. Cause I did, I, I walked in and I was like, are you kidding? This place is, it's huge. Like, um, is, did you have imposter syndrome? Did you feel like at all? I always do. I always have that. I always, I, I dropped out of university. I don't even have a, a degree of any kind. Um, I always feel that way. Um, that's a I, once in a while I take comfort when I read about somebody who's been successful that they've had it too. And so I go, okay, I guess that's not bad, but I am always feeling uh, that I don't belong. So, but at the same time, I wasn't afraid. I just thought, shit, I hope nobody figures it out. <laughs> I hope that I hope so. Cause I, I, when I heard you got it, I didn't think you belonged. And then when I got there and saw you in the role, I was like, damn, this is his perfect space. It's how I felt when you were at sprint as well. I'm like, this is absolutely your zone. And then when you were moving over to casting workbook, I was just like, I didn't have any worries for imposter syndrome at all. I was like, yeah, you got this like big time got this. So, so what was it that attracted you to casting workbook? 
Um, I felt that it was a company that was was doing this. Susan Fox, um, who who you are going to work for in any time you you look at taking that role, and you know this better than anyone. Every one of your guests on the show, I'm sure, feels this way. A big part of that decision is that the potential or the health of the company, but also talk to me about someone sitting in that number one chair, right? What are we? Who are we going to be working with and reporting to? And she. Um, I, and I, I really mean this. She'll, she'll watch this. So I'm not just saying it because I know she'll watch this. But um, but you she, would. She's the most effective uh, CEO that I have ever worked with. And I would say she would run circles in terms of her, her, her energy and her, her ability to keep so focused and enthusiastic about where we're going in the mission would probably even knock Marcelo out. And I didn't think that guy slept. I still am not sure that he slept. Yeah, he was amazing. But she, um, she is, she's the first female CEO I've ever reported to or worked for. And she's outstanding. She's amazing. She's probably the best. I, That's I, amazing. Really, I really mean that. When you're right, because you really do have to develop that yin and yang relationship with the CEO. So, so what, what does she run in the business today? And how long have you been in the role now? It's been a year now? Um, no, no, only we only were probably at what, like nine months, something like that getting close to getting, uh, yeah, about nine months, um, two, two weeks into the job, uh, cause COVID hit and then the world turned upside down. So all these plans, and I'm sure we'll cover that, but I, um, she, she is retains the, the, the founder and owner and CEO status. And in a lot of ways, I think she is, um, our chief technical officer, uh, as well. She's, I mean, a lot of the, the back end and the front side of the technology and the software we've created that transformed the landscape. We were the first to do self-tape mobile apps for the industry, first to create all this kind of software for casting directors all over the world. We, we just came out with, we were the first to do virtual casting room, VCR, we call it software as a response to COVID so that now actors don't even have to go somewhere to audition like they used to. They can do it all virtually like we're doing through Zoom or through their mobile phone and casting directors can do all the things they do. So she's been very innovative and progressive that way and has a grasp of technology that I, I, I didn't even see when I was at Sprint. She's good. Yeah. And so she handles all of that. You don't go there. And then what do you manage then? I manage the, the marketing and the message, um, the operations. She's, she's really trying to leverage my experience over the last uh, 10 years in different companies, helping to systematize the organization more. And, and, and they've been ready for a while for, a, for someone to come in and do that. Um, you know, we're, 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 we're a profitable company and doing well. And she left it and, and handed me something in great shape. And one of the things she was never able to get to was when you reach that certain level of, of, of growth, systematizing things a little more formally and helping it move to move out of that small business feeling into and move into more medium enterprise phase. Right. How, so. how do you, with all the stuff that's on your plate and working with her um, and, and even what you were doing at Vancouver Film School, how, how do you manage all of the different priorities and competing priorities and people and projects? Do you have any systems or tools that you use to manage your time and priorities? I was just saying this to, to Kate, my wife, this morning. We were, she said, you know, what are you going to talk about? And I said, oh, I, I, I'm sure Cameron will do the normal. The most of those things I learned from you, I still, um, top five. Yeah. Used to go, show me, prove it. There it is. 
used to have to I check st- it off on my desk. I'm like, I, still, my desk. I still keep, and this was something Cameron taught me when I was 23 years old, write it on your desk and you check it every day. The most basic thing, GSNR, goal setting and review was a system. And, and you had introduced um, E-Myth from Michael Gerber, which had a profound effect on me and a lot of us that worked for you because we understood that it, it really is that systems are what, what really fail. People don't fail. Mm-hmm. And uh, that carried over in that if you have a really good, set the goals, review the goals, you know, try to keep a top three or a top five. Um, and I, it, n- not much has changed in that respect in 20 years. It was like so simple and straightforward. So that's how I keep it organized. And then obviously I'm, you know, my, my, my phone is sort of my, my, my thing, but I'm, I'm an outlook guy. That's mostly how I manage it. Uh, email, et cetera. My dad taught me something a really long time ago that stuck with me. And I thought this was really smart. He would always say that, Email is not a communication tool. Email is a confirmation tool. Mm. If you use email for confirmation and not to communicate, you can drastically get your inbox to zero much quicker. Um, And if you're ever trying to make that, if you make that mental transition and don't communicate through email, just confirm information, you'll be stunned how, how much less email you have to traffic day to day. That's interesting. Yeah, we were talking this morning, we had a, a group call with our COO Alliance members, and we were talking about using an app called Marco Polo, which is kind of like video chat or video messaging, where you just send video messages back and forth to each other, short 30 second, 60 second video clips. Great. And it's, it's amazing because you actually get the rest of the picture, right? When you're, when you're saying something, you see the person smiling when they're saying it. Like for me, I can come off as very short and acerbic, but over video, I usually come off as a little bit, a little bit better, mildly better. Um, and then you, because you got your hat on, so you look great and you're good and good. <laughs> it's because I've got COVID <laughs> hair, man. You don't want to see it. So what, so what changed then? You were walking into an organization with a vision and a strategy probably in place that you were excited about. And then literally a few weeks later, everything got turned upside down. How did that feel? What did you, how did you get through that? I think we're still getting through it. Um, like most companies, you figure out, is there, is there some way we can pivot? Do we just have to be patient and wait this thing out? Um, You know, Susan and I had a lot of long nights working on that and thinking about that. And um, I felt a lot of pressure to come up with something great. Um, I'm sure a lot of, a lot of leaders are are still doing that. Right. And wondering if in a crisis, could I do this? I had, I had worked in crisis around CEOs. Yeah. I remember the downturn. I was there for that. I remember just before I started working for you, I remember I worked at a hospitality startup when, when 9-11 happened and things crashed. So I've, I've, seen, I've seen these kinds of things and I've watched it, but to go through it, you know, um, there was no real playbook for this one because in a way it wasn't necessarily a crisis. It was like, what if we change the rules tomorrow? We say, you, all, you can't work together, you have to work apart. Yeah, this, so, was, this was different from a traditional, like you can prepare for things like a, yeah. a bomb or, a, or an earthquake or a death or a suicide or um, sexual harassment, but shutting, right. down, shutting down the world and it's like every company, it's like, wait, what the fuck? That, that's just yeah. different. Yeah, but I think we were uniquely, there was, we were uniquely positioned because of the nature of what we do, which is virtual casting. And- Had you started the virtual casting at that point? No, we were doing we were doing self tape, which was something we introduced years years earlier. This idea now that actors could video their audition and, and literally phone it in, okay. um, and this was revolutionary uh, because of casting workbook and then a bunch of our competitors that followed suit, where 
now an actor doesn't have to try to sneak out of their shift at, at Starbucks and go wait around for their audition. They can do it when they can get to it and send it in by the deadline and the casting director can organize the files and do it. So there was no real reason why we couldn't continue with the exception that Hollywood had kind of shut down production, which is a little bit of a barrier. <laughs> Um, but that. otherwise we felt common. So we shifted to creating content. We went back to the basics, right? Which was what, what is it that we really stand for? Well, we, we stand for actors and casting directors and we want to make their lives easier. So we just shifted to content. We launched a, 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 a web series dedicated to the working actor, which went huge, which we didn't even think everybody was doing a podcast or whatever. But this one, we just, we focused it on what they cared about most. <laughs> and we transitioned to e-learning and things like that. And, 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 and so far it's showing, we're cautiously optimistic. I would not say that it, it, it completely saved anybody, but we, our, our pivot worked anyway. This is a different question than, than most um, COOs have had to deal with, but you're in a marketplace based in Vancouver and you guys are location-based, correct? Like most of your people come to an office normally? Correct. Pre-COVID. So you're in, you're in one of the most expensive markets in the world to, to live, like a San Francisco or a New York, but it's also really expensive for talent here. How, how have you, and, and we've got the, the competition in the technology space, how have you guys attracted talent at reasonable prices and gotten them to drive to your offices or sub, you know, train or whatever. Um, you know, the fact that we have an office, we still do. We're just not there. Um, in, in, uh, Olympic village, you know, down by Granville Island, it's a trendy, sexy area of the city. Um, very, uh, accessible by public transit. And, and since Vancouver had the Olympics, as you know, the, um, you know, transportation from the city is, is great. Um, so that has been really helpful. It allowed a lot of our employees to work in, in remote suburbs and get down there quickly. And um, Susan always embraced a culture, and I do too, of um, you, you could work from home. We had a lot of flex time and, you know, we were a really results driven company before I got there. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to come in is it fit with my MO, which is results over, over um, how much time you're strapped to a desk. Um, and so it wasn't such a terrible thing. It was yeah. for us, that wasn't the big challenge. The bigger challenge was waiting out Hollywood, trying to figure out when do they feel like they can go back into production. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it, it, was a, it was a cool company. So I don't think a lot of employees felt too bad about going to that central location. No, it, it is actually an interesting location too. I never thought about offices down in the Olympic Village, but it's better than Yaletown, which is too busy and too crowded and too kind of 1999 or 2010. It's, you are in a newer, hipper area. That's right. So- I want to talk to you about something that, that I've noticed over the years, and I want to know whether it's a game that you play or whether it's real. But you come off as either an Aussie shucks, I don't really know what I'm doing here, I'm over my head, or this is difficult kind of thing. Is that for show, or do you actually feel that? Is it a lack of self-confidence, and, and it's real, and you're just being vulnerable? Or is it the way that you mask the fact that you're overly confident and you don't want to come off as cocky? It's a, it's a very good question. I don't think I, I, you're one of the only people uniquely suited to probably ask me that. Um, most people probably wouldn't dare. <laughs> 
Um, and I mean it, I mean it in an interesting, like, I mean it in an interesting way. Like I, I will tell people, well, shit, I did a phone call with you where I was walking into a speaking event and I said, I was hyperventilating and I was terrified to walk in and I didn't know what I was going to do and what I was going to talk. And you had to call me off a cliff and say, just walk up to people and say, how long have you worked with junior achievement? And then it would turn into a conversation. So I, I've had to turn to you because I've been scared about shit, but I've seen you, but I don't buy it. Well, I think the answer to that is that I have, as I said earlier, I always suffer from a degree of imposter syndrome in that I, my, I don't have any diploma or anything on my wall that makes me feel You're lucky. Pre- preconditioned to, to do what I do successfully. So I make a decision early on that um, I'm a very confident, I'm very confident in myself, mm-hmm. extremely. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, we all have doubts. Mine, I think my doubts just usually last seconds instead of minutes or hours. And I, and I feel like I don't have a choice because if you let them go outside of, if doubt lasts more than seconds in your day to day, it can be crippling. Um, so I've just made a decision and I've had a really, when you don't know the answer, I've built a, a an incredible network of trusted mentors and people that I can turn to and I can be vulnerable with. So I think that maybe that thing, saying that about the answer is I am, I am vulnerable and, and, and honest with people that I have known for a long time, a very small number of them, which includes you, of course, and you know that Um, otherwise to my staff and to my, my team and to the people I work with and, and to my sons, I, uh, I try to, to project in indestructibility and vulnerability. Yeah. Iron Man. Um, <laughs> right, I guess. The, the, well, that makes a lot of sense, actually, that it is it lasts seconds. So you open up, you, you question it and curious, but then you move on quickly, whereas I stew on it for years. Yeah, I just, I move past. You have to. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. You are one of the strongest leaders I've ever met, one of the strongest performers I've ever met. I remember doing a, a reference check on you with the CEO of H Careers, that hospitality group that you work with. Mark Hamilton, I think was his name, and I called him up and said, I need 20 years ago. How do you remember that? Because I had to put my career on the fact that I was hiring <laughs> you. <laughs> um, I, did, I think I did seven, seven reference checks on you, and, and you stood at my desk, and I called Mark <laughs> Hamilton, and I said, I'm calling about Christopher Ian Bennett, and he said, oh my God, you've got my best guy. Um, and you were just getting, what he said. Oh, he yeah, was, yeah, yeah. That's what he said. That I was think he was Scottish. Yeah, yeah. And that was that was. Uh, <laughs> I think everybody probably feels that. I think everyone probably feels like they lost their best guy when you've moved to the next brand. Oh, uh, that's incredibly kind of you to say. So, where do you struggle as a COO now? What are you working on? And because we all struggle, everybody has their 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 parts that we're working on or getting better. Like even a pro athlete, like. Um, Beckham, who I think is one of your favorites, you know, he, yeah. he had a coach, right? Like he's always working on his game. Where are you working on your game? Um, I, as you know, I even reached out to you. I was recently exploring, uh, I have been for a while. I've been on a lot of first dates with executive coaches and I wasn't quite finding the thing that I was looking for in that respect. I've been trying to do a lot of professional development um, and you, once you're in that mid-level executive, you know, director and VP level, you, you go to a lot of conferences, workshops, the company pays for them. They're okay. They do okay. You read a lot of books. Um, then you get to the C-suite and you're like, okay, I need to go to that next level. 
And, and I thought an executive coach could be very effective. I, we, we had them at a few companies. I worked with RHR and a few of them over the years when I was at Best Buy. I was in a, a leadership uh, level where you, you had one assigned to you from the company. <laughs> and Mike Pratt really, uh, really believed in that. And it was something that um, was important to him and, and for all his, his team below him. And then at Best uh, at Guitar Center in the US, we had that too but I've always felt like they worked for the company and they didn't necessarily work for me. Mm. And I felt like often they were holding them. They, they were, there was a lot of that intro, like, why do you think you're doing that? Or what do you oh, think is the, the Socratic method? I, I don't yeah. like that. I don't like no. that. Yeah. I, I, if I, I really want to coach, I want a coach to bench me and say, your jump shot is, is terrible right now. Or you're, you know, you're, you're dragging your elbow on your follow through or whatever. Like really I can take it. I, I was looking for someone who wasn't afraid to critique me. And on a lot of these first dates, they were, um, they were trying to think to woo me. And, and I, I didn't want that. I wanted somebody to tell me you, you have a, a whole lot to learn. So I wasn't able to find them. And then I explored forum groups and things like that. Um, and I, and I went on a couple of those dates, but the challenge was, um, there was a lot of experienced people sharing their expertise. And I didn't feel like I was in a position to give some guy advice on his company as well. Certainly not yet. So I, I, it didn't go anywhere. So that's where I think the real answer is I'm not doing enough. And it's the number one thing on my mind right now. Well, I, I would disagree that you don't have, and, and by the way, you don't, you shouldn't be giving people advice. You should be sharing experience on similar situations and let them draw the advice from that. You're probably right. Well, I am right. You have all, you have in this case, and I can see you learning, um, which is an old, <laughs> an old joke of ours. So um, the, as a COO, you want to be giving other COOs your experience share and let them draw from that what they can. And by the way, you're not looking for a coach. You're looking for a mentor. You don't want someone to use the Socratic method to ask you a lot of questions to get you to figure it out. You want somebody who's been there that can give you the shortcuts and the cheat sheets and can show you where you're already making errors. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm looking for I am a I'm a copycat. I, yeah. I am a combination of of eight eight years of working with Mike Pratt, of, of working with Marcelo and Doug Michaelman and you. I copy and then and it works. And I'm that's I, I and I'm looking for someone that will give me close access and I can learn and I know how to ask this question and get myself in the situations to learn. I know where I'm not strong, finance being one of those areas. And um, I, I think that was maybe, or that is the challenge is I'm, I'm, I'm not finding, I don't have a good mentor at the moment that is yeah. accessible and available to me easily in this role. Well, you met my, my mentor years ago, Greg Johnson, I think, who was being groomed as a second in command at Starbucks. Greg mentored me for 18 months. And um, I would do a call with him every month and then an in-person meeting every quarter. And I would go down to the Starbucks head office one quarter. He'd come up to the one in got junk office. We'd alternate. And he was just somebody who'd been in the path that I was going in. And I just wanted him to just to keep teaching me. And, and he didn't ask me many questions. He would just take a look at what I was working on and he would show me how to do it faster and better and simpler. And, you know, th I think that might be yeah. where you are as well. Yeah. Um, Frank, Frank Palmer is someone I lean on a, a, a lot creatively, certainly when I have to wear my CMO hat. And I, I really love Frank and he's, a, he's a, an iconic guy and to learn from. And he's, he's making his own you know, second act in his creative career, which is exciting. So I, I, in that respect, I, I, I'm learning still and I'm trying. Where, where do you think that um, you've grown the most in terms of working with the two CEOs, the CEO of Vancouver Film School and then um, Susan, the CEO of Casting Workbook? Where have you 
grown and adapted to work with those kinds of leaders? I would say probably less so at Vancouver Film School because um, the owner there was very hands-off, James Griffin, and a, a wonderful man and a brilliant man and very really did a great job of letting his, his leaders do what they do. I, say, I would say I probably grew the most in my time from uh, Mike Pratt right, right across to Doug Michaelman from, from Sprint, who I, I think of sometimes like a second dad. And he's a tough guy. He taught me to where Mike would have allowed me to be very close to him and was a really great guy to study and learn from and had a very gentle patience about him and, and a wisdom. Doug had an, an instinct and an impulse and a temperament that demanded results and demanded that you keep up with him. And some people couldn't do it. And I learned, I learned that I am way stronger uh, than I thought I was. And I can, there are personalities don't matter results matter and, and the, and someone's true intentions as a leader matter more. And if you, if you can identify and align with those in a leader, the personality stuff works itself out. Sometimes you're going to really like each other. Sometimes not. He was a challenging guy because he was, um, he was just, he was just challenging. I'm trying to say that in a nice way. And not he was, he watches, he goes, what do you mean? But he, but he, but I, I, I mean, I love him. Like, uh, I, we, you know, I joke that he's, you know, he's like a, a dad to me too in that way. But he, he demanded things, and I grew a lot from him because if I didn't, he would have, he would have fired me. Well, I'll put some color on that as well that people may not realize. But Sprint was at that time the 82nd largest company in the United States. You're talking about a guy who is making approximately 2.5 million a year in salary. So and and they were in a turnaround, try to sell the company to, to T-Mobile moment under the a fierce CEO who'd been brought in by SoftBank to turn the place around. These guys weren't messing around. You were you were working with a, a team of at times probably seeming like disasters and corporate people, but these were serious, serious executives with serious, serious skills that were under a lot of pressure to get some shit done. Oh yeah, raise, yeah. I mean, when you're battling, raised your game. Yeah, it was a brand war between T-Mobile, right? You got Clowray and Legere before they merged. And it, every day was Coke, Pepsi, right? Every day. And so I was in the front lines of this battle. And Doug was an incredible commander. And you had to keep up with him. And, and um, he would, you know, he would tell you when he was not happy. And so you would go home for the first time. I would go home most days. And I would know what I had done wrong. Because he was not <laughs> afraid to voice. He was not afraid to voice that. And then... Um, and I, I ended up liking that. I ended up thriving under that. And I had never really had that before. Um, you, you, you manage somewhere in the middle the way you lead. And, and um, he was like, here's what's wrong with this. Go fix it. And I actually, I really, I, I grew the most because I, from my personality type, I do really well under that. And then when I, by the time he got me ready, by the time you get to Susan, she's, she's not like that. She's very mm. collaborative, mm-hmm. extremely open to new ideas. Um, she's, she's who I try to aspire to be right now in that she could be talked out of something. There's a real humility to the way she leads, but I wouldn't have been able to be effective that way unless I'd had Doug first. So what can you teach us about working at that sea level of a major corporate environment in dealing with politics? How did you navigate the politics? How did you get around? Cause you were working fast in that place and you were in a division, um, that had to move fast. How did you, and you got the ear of everybody there. How did you navigate all the politics that most people get caught up in? I think I felt like probably in my years with Best Buy and with, with Guitar Center in LA, politics was something where it was my job to make my case for my department and make it stronger than the other 
leader in that department and try to, and everything I, I think at the time was about, I've got to make a better case and I've got to win the ear and the confidence of the CEO. By the time I'd gotten to Sprint or after I left Sprint, I think I realized more than ever before the importance of relationships and how everyone is battling something and, and something really, and I really mean this genuinely incredible happens when you understand that the guy over in, in IT or in, in, in digital customer service or, or, or HR is genuinely and truly aligned with the same objective you are. Um, and that if you're partners and you, you figure out what mo what, what's driving them or what they're battling, you have way more in common with them. So I think I, I ended up, I, you know, finding, learning about that more at Sprint. And I felt like every one of us was staying up late and working these 15, 16, 17 hour days because we all mm -hmm. wanted the same thing. So it, it was, it was really awesome. I, 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 well, I don't know if I'll ever have another, another job like that, but it was a good learning place. And you're right that everybody is actually trying to battle through something that they're working with. I think everyone's also battling with some personal issue as well that's struggling, you know, at home or with their family or with their spouse or with their kids or with themselves that oh, yeah. we really got to be empathetic to the human struggle that our team goes through as well, right? Totally. And how much of that do you give up to, you know, I always feel like I'm not supposed to let them know what I'm battling, but I'm just supposed to figure out what they're battling. And by doing that and learning when can I be a bit more vulnerable um, and, and, or when, when I'm overthinking it. And, and the trick is just to, to, I don't know. I don't know. I think you can be vulnerable with your weaknesses, but not necessarily with your fears. Like uh, you can't, you can't necessarily tell them you're scared. The company's like, this is not about your company. I'm making up an example, but you can't say, Oh, I'm worried the company's going to go bankrupt. Like that, that one you got to keep with the CFO and the CEO behind the scenes. Yeah, they don't like that when you say that, but you're allowed to say I suck at financials and I don't know how to read a balance sheet, but I've got a really good finance team that can. So I focus on this stuff or Susan's really great at technology and I'm not. So like you're allowed to say that. Yeah, I agree. Do you, do you tell them that you don't like vegetables still? <laughs> I have a, I eat like a teenager. It's terrible. I, thank God my wife makes a, a veggie shake in the morning, but my diet is so it's, it's cheeseburgers and cinnamon toast crunch. It's terrible. Yeah, you're also in great shape, which is, it'll maybe it'll catch up with you. You're, you're lucky. You're, it's amazing still what you've done at such a young age. It still pisses me off. Um, you've done so much you've worked. Do you, do you, did you learn from politics being in that politics role? And do you carry any of those lessons into your role as a CEO now? Yeah. Uh, how you execute a campaign is, is to, to win over your district or your riding or to win over a, a demographic is exactly the same construct as designing a message to, to keep your customers or to attract new customers. It's the same stuff. I think that's why I ended up going into communications and marketing from there because the parallels were, were so much. From a leadership perspective, I think if my opinion now, 20 years later, if more business leaders went into politics, our state of government and our state of uh, effective government would be far superior than it is today. Yeah. I think, I think the challenge is we still, no matter what we think, we elect people in a popularity contest who we like and we really don't stop and go, wait a minute, what, what, aside from showing up and voting on important legislation, what does this person need to do to be effective representing me 
in 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 Washington or in 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 my in Canada and Ottawa or wherever. And business people get that. The C-suite understands quarter by quarter, year by year, what are we trying to do and how are we getting there? And we don't get a lot of exposure to that publicly. I think that's still a bit of a a mystified area that people don't understand. Like Trudeau, whatever you think of him, and I'm talking Canadian politics right now, and I don't want to get too political. um, I don't think he's a very likable guy. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's a total idiot or anything like that. Um, But at the same time, he's, he's not qualified to do that job um, yet. At least he's likable. <laughs> yeah, he's very likable. I want to talk about U.S. politics. We got somebody who's not likable and isn't qualified as well. Oh. But, but I don't want to get into politics either. No, of course, of course. <laughs> so here's something I want to ask you from politics, though, that I think uh, that just occurred to me. You are one of the most talented writers and communicators, period. Um, I've seen you on stages. I've seen the work that you've written. You've done copy for me we worked together for years. I've seen the work that you've done with Sprint. Like you're really, really, really good at that. What are the, the tips that CEOs and COOs can use on communicating when they're doing things like a state of the union with their company or town hall meetings when they're listening or in written communication? Can you give us some kind of cheat sheets on how they can be better? Like where do they classically screw up? Yeah, three things. If you have a pen or pencil, write these down. Number one, clear message. Number two, clear messenger. And number three, clear message pathway. And clear message is pretty obvious. Clear messenger is where a lot of people stumble. They think that they are supposed to go, well, I'm, I'm giving the speech or I'm writing this, this, this email to my customers or I'm standing up in front of my employees or whatever, I'm the messenger. That's, not, that's, not, that's rarely the case. Um, and three, clear message pathway is what vehicle are you choosing to deliver that message? Mm. Um, and if you go back to point number two, most of the time your voice should be from the perspective of your audience. If you need to speak from a place of um, identification with who you are trying to convince or deliver a clear message to, and you should always speak from the perspective of your customer. You can't just say, we understand our customers or we love our customers and we're going to look after them and give them the best service and satisfaction they've ever had in their life. You can't do that. You have to, you can't just say it. You have to demonstrate that by, by, understanding their position. So in, in essence, clear messenger means which, how well do you know your, your audience and have you figured out the way in your voice to project that? And then pathway, um, sometimes where, where can you do a speech or a talk? There's so many great ways to do that now. Uh, social media, email, uh, a, a venue, a, a public event, a staff meeting, um, what, a phone call, right? You have to really entertain, how do I want to deliver this message the Mm. most effectively? So those three things right there come from politics. And if you, if you put those things on, on the wall, on the board first, and then start to break down from there, you'll, you'll have the tenets of a really great talk. It's interesting. I I remember when I was coaching um, Marcelo at Sprint and also his second in command, Jamie Jones, for about 18 months, I, I was really pushing Marcelo a number of times to do some video messages to the company and to the team just to, I said, you come across so much better with energy and, and passion and than you do over in writing. And and I think if they can hear you and see you and feel you. Um, Jamie was a great, great amazing guy. Yeah. 
That, I bet that. No, this was. I wanted Marcelo to do it, not so much. Oh, Jamie, yeah. Jamie did it with his team too, but I was trying to get Marcelo to do it as well. You said something though on the messenger that you said something about the messenger. You know, you feel like I'm supposed to be the one, but that's not always the case. What did you mean by that? Is it is it that if you're the CEO, sometimes you can get someone else to speak for you, or if you're the CEO, somebody like? Well, the 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 audience carries your message if it's delivered uh, effectively. So the, so the messenger isn't the person delivering it. It's the people that are hearing it that are then taking it as a messenger. Correct. If, if it's delivered clearly, it is your audience who becomes the messenger. They become the mailman yeah. that will deliver that to even more of your audience. Yeah. And so when you understand that you are not the messenger, your audience is, you have to speak in a way that they feel like they identify with it and it connects with them and then they will walk out of the room and it won't just have gone over their head or gone, so what, or read it somewhere and said, eh. they'll, they'll talk about it. They'll evangelize it for you. They will, they will become the messenger. You know, I read a really interesting book about that about 15 years ago called trends. And it talked about um, how women communicate 10 times more than men do. And if you've got a message to deliver, deliver it to the female audience because they're going to multiply it much faster than any of the males that you share it with. So if you have any points to speak it to, is to speak it to the females in the group. Any thoughts around that? Yeah, I didn't understand the question. Women don't stop talking. So, and, and, and in, in a good way, like if you and I stayed at a hotel and then Kate and my girlfriend Ashley stayed in a hotel and we stayed at the best hotel in the world, you and I probably wouldn't tell anybody. And they would be talking about how great that place was for years. Oh, I see what you're saying. So, yeah, it, so yeah. if, you're the, if you're the hotel trying to get a message across, you want to deliver it to the female audience and speak to them because they're the ones that, as the messenger, are going to multiply it much more than you and I walking out of the room are even going to do. Uh, I don't know if I necessarily have uh, enough examples where that's, I don't think that's untrue because I've seen, but I have seen a lot of males who, whether they're really happy with something or they're not happy, they can, they can definitely <laughs> they vocalize it. But I do think women, one thing I have observed, and I think this is true, I've read it and I have observed it, they will, when they are in a room, they will seek to identify who they might already know or who they can connect or have something in common with within their network or otherwise. Men, when they walk into a room, will often try to determine who's the most important person in the room. Right. Who should I? And meet? so I know their perspective and how they will then receive information is clearly very different. And that that's tricky. You got to because in a lot of ways, that means you have two messengers if you break it into that the, the gender based, which I think good messengers need to do. Interesting. All right, Christopher, final question. If we were to go back to 2000 and or not 2001, but back to when you were 21 and you wanted to give yourself some advice because you clearly don't listen to anybody else, but if you were going to listen to, I'm kidding, if you were going to listen to yourself, what word of advice would you give yourself as a 21-year-old that, that now you know to be true, but you wish you'd known at 21? I write, in a, I write in a journal, or I keep a log every year of the things that I've learned along the way. Um, so I do actually reflect on this fairly often, but, not, but I, I usually look a week or a month behind me. Um, I would probably just say um, you don't need nearly as much sleep as you think <laughs> and you, and you need way more sleep than you think. Um, and I don't mean to contradict those two things, just that I, I have underappreciated when I was young, how important 
my mental state was for it directly attributed to how creative or effective or, um, you know, how, how, how great I can be in, in problem solving relates to my diet and my sleep. <laughs> and, and, uh, I would probably advise myself to take that a bit more seriously because maybe I could have, maybe I could have been on your show a couple of years earlier. I don't know. That's awesome. Thank you. I'll tell you one that I've, I've always been a little bit nervous about when I was a kid was I just could never ask the girl out. And then I always had the crush on the girl and I could never take the step. And you took the step and asked out the girl and have ended up with an amazing life partner as Kate. And I don't think I've ever said this in 110 episodes of the guests I've interviewed, but she's amazing. She found an amazing partner as well. And I'm super happy for both of you. So. Oh, thank you, Paula. That means so much to me. Yeah. When, if you, if you ever get a chance to marry up, and someone way better grab it. Get, get what did my my granddad always say? Get the girl, grab the money, and run. <laughs> well, I think I think I think you both did in this case. But Christopher Bennett, the president and chief marketing officer for Casting Workbook, thanks so much for being with us on the Second in Command podcast. Uh, I love you, man. Thank you. I'm honored. This is my first interview where someone interviewed me. So thank you. I really appreciate it. It's also the first time I've never used your nickname in public and I won't do it today. <laughs> I thought we were going to get all the way to the end and you wouldn't do it. That'd I'm be- not doing it. I told you I wouldn't. Bye, everybody. Thank you. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.